Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of The Informed Catholic. My name is Ned Jabbar, and this is going to be episode 159 for this year of The Informed Catholic, episode 159. And for this episode, we're going to continue our Bible study on the Gospel according to Mark. We're going to continue our Bible study on the Gospel according to Mark. So, once more, this is the Informed Catholic, and my name is Ned Jabbar. And so let's begin. Uh, oh, yeah. Please subscribe and share uh, the podcast if you like it. Share it with your friends. Uh, I try to do the best I can. Um, I'm a convert to the Catholic faith from Islam. Um, never been a practicing Muslim, but I am a Catholic now. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe he is the Son of God. I believe he is the savior of the world, and I believe he established established a, a, a church on earth, uh, the Catholic Church, um, the universal church for all mankind to lead uh, people into salvation. I believe it's the bride. We are members of the bride of Christ. So, once more, please subscribe and share. So, let's begin our prayer for. Um, Bible study. Let's call on the Holy Spirit. Come, O Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, you instructed the hearts of thy faithful by the light of thy Holy Spirit. Grant us by the same Holy Spirit to have right judgment in all things and ever rejoice in his consolation. We pray all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Glory be to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, one God forever and ever. Amen. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Mother of our Lord, please pray for us. St. Joseph, Guardian of the Holy Family and the Church, please pray for us. St. Jerome, Bible Scholar, Translator of the Bible, please pray for us. St. Augustine, please pray for us. St. Athanasius, please pray for us. St. Ambrose, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so um, now we're going to look into John the Baptist. All right, we're going to look into John the Baptist. Now I have a book here with notes that I made. Um, now, this is from uh, one Bible commentary. I, t I picked up, it's called Come and See. Uh, you can get it on Amazon Kindle. It's not bad, it's actually quite good. John the Baptist, son of Zachariah and Elizabeth. John, his father and mother are descendants of Aaron. Aaron, the brother of Moses, who was the first high priest of Israel. The first high priest. And uh, Aaron had sons and... Later on, his own his sons got married and had children, and there were more sons. God blessed them with many sons. There were many sons of Aaron. And at this time, the time of um, the birth of John the Baptist, the high priesthood was no longer controlled um, by... Uh, by the sons of Aaron alone. It was sort of like there was a lot of um, there was a, a lot of revolution. This goes back to the time of the Maccabees. 
And later on, the Maccabees would come into power, and they themselves, I believe, were um, of 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 uh, Levite. See, there are some. There's a tribe of Levi, and there are many Levites, and and others who were members of the Levites were sort of like deacons or subdeacons or you know secondary priests. Let's put it that way. And then you have the sons of Aaron, and that was broken up into orders. But by a certain point, other Levites took over the priesthood. Uh, in the time of the Maccabees, there was a lot of heresy. And as whenever you have human beings, nothing human is going to be surprising, as someone said once. It's not going to be shocking. What human beings do um, and corruption, like it happens in political corruption, same thing happens inside the church. You can't... It's interesting how... People can tolerate political corruption far more than they can tolerate, like they have less tolerance for religious corruption. They, they, for some reason, it's interesting, even for people who don't believe in God. And I guess maybe for some reason, they, they, um, they don't separate um, the, 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 the dignity of God from the lack of uh, impeccability of, of a religious person. Uh, let's say who holds that office, say a priest or a bishop or a pope. It shouldn't, it shouldn't surprise people. But they often, they use their hatred for the church and religion to mask, uh, you know, to mask their own guilt, their own, I believe it's psychological. It's deeply psychological. Because hatred for the church, I mean, that's what happened during the Reformation, right? You know, it's like they thought that they can, they, they can tolerate scandal within the Reformation, but they can't handle, they can't tolerate scandal. And I'm not saying tolerance like in a way like just accept it, deal with it. No, I mean by in a sense, you have to expect it. You have to expect that there is going to be bad people. There's going to be wolves in sheep's clothing. If you know political corruption is going to happen, and if you know corruption within, let's say, a, a royal family, scandal within a royal family can happen. If you know there can be corruption in the military or corruption in a corporation, people are not as scandalized by it. But when it comes to religion, they they react more shockingly. When it comes to a religious institution or any institute, any religious institution, they're not shocked. Sexual, oh boy, it's even worse. It's even worse because for some, you know, it, it's just that they they want to use it for a way to destroy the church. Now we've had scandal in the Catholic Church right from the beginning, from right from the start. We know it. Um, Judas Iscariot is a good example, right? In charge of the money, stole money, and who knows? Maybe he even used it for um, for his uh, 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 sexual exploits. We're not told that, but it's a possibility. He used he used uh, his office for his own personal gain. Uh, Simon Peter denied the Lord three times. Did not he ever knew him? Even cursed him in his face. And what happened? That's a scandal. 
And then you have the other rest of the apostles. They ran for it. They deserted him. You have scandal right from the beginning. And Jesus himself predicted it. So why should we so shocked, so overwhelmed by today's? We shouldn't tolerate it. We should demand that it should be cleaned up. Michael Voris is absolutely right about that on Church Militant. We should demand that it should be cleaned up. And we can do something about it by holding back our money, by demanding it. The church herself has withstood, an institution like this has withstood 2,000 years. It has survived empires, wars, uh, revolutions, um, political conflicts, the birth of the, of the modern state, World War I, World War II, the Cold War. And even now, in an age of complete uh, moral decay, and believe it or not, we're living in an age of moral decay. Our, our, our civilization in this modern world is decaying. It's falling apart. What will come next, we don't know. God help us, but the church demands that we be saints. She is the bride of Christ. The earthly part of the church is um, is earthly because it has human beings. But we need we need to become saints. We need to become holy. We need to pray more. We need to 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 up our game, our spiritual game, our spiritual um, need for, for, um, for holiness more. And that's, I'm telling you, that's what we need to do. So let's, let's um, get going with the, with the scripture program here. As I said, John the Baptist is descendant of Aaron. Now, he is, he was from the moment he was born, he was anointed to be a prophet. We need to look at the word anointed. The word comes from the Hebrew, Mashiach. We get the word Messiah. The king of Israel was anointed. He was a Mashiach, an anointed one. The word in Greek, we get the word Christos or Christi. We get the modern word Christ. It's a designated individual set aside to do God's holy work. Okay, God's holy one, a prince, kings, prophets, and kings, even the high priest was anointed. Jesus himself holds all three holy offices, priest, prophet, king. There's also one more. Sacrifice. The Lamb of God. In all, you could say there's four you know, three plus one, you know, the sacrifice. He is a sacrifice. He is the one who would fulfill it. Now, all, all three, like I said, are designated as anointed. A, a king has to be anointed. Uh, a priest has to be anointed, right? If you read the Psalms, it's like the beautiful oil, the fragrant oil mixed with myrrh or, or frankincense coming down Aaron's head down to his beard, to his collar. That's what Jesus, Jesus himself was anointed. 
When Abraham met Melchizedek, Melchizedek anointed Abraham. The mysterious uh, uh, priest, king, and prophet. He just came up to Abraham, uh, blessed him. He brought out bread and wine, which is the original sacrifice of Adam of Adam in the Garden of Eden. And he anointed Abraham. Um, John the Baptist came from the line of Aaron, and the line of Aaron is anointed. You could say that the high priestly office ended with John the Baptist's martyrdom, when Herod Antipas killed him, had him executed in his dungeon. All right? That in itself says it all to you. It could tell you that right there, the line of the priesthood ended, officially with John the Baptist. You go on from there, Jesus himself now possesses the king, the prophet, office of prophet, the office of king, prophet, and king. One more, and he will become the sacrifice. And he will fulfill God's covenant that he would become the savior of the world. He is the savior. He was born to be the savior of the world. I shouldn't have said that, but he is savior of the world. But this is something that the world has to see. The world has to know. The world has to understand. And regardless if you are for Jesus or anti-Jesus, you will know that Jesus Christ is savior of the world. Only one name always, always seems to make it on top. Even 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ is king. All right, so John the Baptist is a prophet like Elijah. He prepares this divinely, he's, he's prepared and divinely designated the way. Now, if you have someone who is designated by God, which is Jesus, you have to have someone who will herald his coming. And that is John the Baptist. Um, now, we're going to be traveling along the way. The one who is coming after John the Baptist will, ba will be baptized with the Holy Spirit anointed. Now, the location of John the Baptist in the wilderness allows the reader to identify him as the messenger of the covenant that was spoken by God. John the Baptist is the voice crying in the wilderness, Mark chapter 1 verse 3. The king the, the kind of preparation, I'm sorry, the kind of preparation he provides involves calling people to repentance. Okay, an act of contrition. The baptism that John administers is not a sacrament. Okay, John's baptism was not a sacrament, but one, but a one-time ritual of washing in preparation for the coming of that special person whom God will send. The purpose of the baptism of John involves repentance, which literally means the change of mind and heart. The baptism of John, therefore, implies a moral conversion. I don't know if you've ever seen the film, uh, the miniseries, Jesus of Nazareth. There's a line in the show where it says, men's hearts must change before kingdoms change or the world changes. It's a... It's a kind of like a proverb or a saying, a classical saying. I mean, look at the way the look at the state of the world. Look at the way people are. Everybody wants to try to create a perfect world. Everybody has an idea of the perfect world. Um, you got uh, Marxists who think they can create the perfect world. You got um, 
uh, people, on the other hand, who think they can get rid of all kinds of racism and injustice, which is all that is very good. But, you you know, they're doing it in the way that men do it. And a lot of people, and there's also people who are, who are kind of like leeches. They're riding on all this. Those who basically are using this for their own political and financial gain. They, you know, they don't, they don't want this to end. There's a lot of people that don't want racism and bigotry and sexism and, 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 and financial corruption to go. They like it because it puts money in their pockets. And then also you get others who are using this to hide their racism. You know, especially the population control people. Those particular people don't want to get rid of racism. You know, they, they, they want to get rid of the, They want to get rid of certain people. You know, you get people who say like, oh, well, we need to cut the population. Which ones? Is it the dark people, the black people, the brown people? Is it white people? Is it Asian people? Is it men or is it women? Or is it the mixed race people? Which ones will satisfy you to get rid of? It, it, they hide behind it. They're, they're very sinister. The devil has all kinds of people out there in the political activist arena. They're all there. All right. So let's continue here. Now, uh, the impact of John the Baptist is enormous. The Greek text highlights it was the use of... Um, I'm going to look at this word here. It's a word I never use. Okay, hold on. All right, I kind of highlighted the word. Casmius uh, over here has chiastic, uh, a rhetorical or literary figure in which words, grammatical constructions, or concepts are repeated in reverse order in the same or modified form. Poetry is the record of the best and happiest moments of the happiest and best times. Okay, this is interesting. Casimir's um, uh, crosswise arrangements from Cassian. Mark with the letter. Okay, I'm reading too much there. Uh, it's from the Greek, technically. It's a reversal of grammatical uh, construction of, of structure, successive phrases. All right, let's just see if we understand it. Uh all the country of Judea and the people of Jerusalem, even though the statement should not be taken literally, or else would be left in who would be left in land. Okay, basically, I guess because everyone came. It's using a wide, uh, poetic form. You know, all the people, like he says here, all the country of Judea, and the people of Jerusalem. Now we know that. <laughs> Not everybody in Jerusalem came out to see him. I mean, the Pharisees did. A lot of people probably weren't interested. And all the people of Judea and probably for all over Galilee did not leave everything just to go listen to John. But it looked like it. It was a, it was a, it was a large crowd. You know how you, you go to a, um, uh, a protest or maybe a political rally and it looks like all the people of the city came out to hear him speak. When a person says that, it's just a, a a poetic way of speaking. It, in other words, there was a lot of people there, a lot of people there, and that was and and that's that's what they mean by it. So, okay, so that's we learned something. Maybe maybe not everything was necessary, but we learned it. Even a statement should not be taken literally, or else nobody would be left in the land. The pop the popularity of John the Baptist should not be underestimated. 
When many years later and many miles away, St. Paul proclaims the gospel in Asia Minor, there are several people who, who only knew the baptism of John. That's right, in Acts chapter 18, verse 25, and 19, verse 3 and 4. For St. Luke, describing the Acts of the Apostles, the early years of the church, and those belonging to the way, the baptism of John, the Baptist, is, is a fixed reference point. Acts, Acts chapter 10, verse 37 and 13, verse 24. So we're going over, like we're going over here about John the Baptist, his background, and in order to understand how important he is. All right. So we see now that John obviously att attracted a lot of attention and also what he was doing, the baptism um, there's a Jewish ritual called mikvah, uh, I believe, and it's and it's basically a ritual of purification. Uh, if let's say you touch the dead body, you're gonna have to purify, go do a ritual washing. Uh, women in Judaism tend to do it, let's say, uh, when they have uh, menstruation. Uh, you know, there's a a certain menstrual at that time of the month when they have to go. Uh, they're bleeding, you know, uh, and they're menstruating, and then they have to go and perform a ritual, uh, I guess, after the menstruation ended. Or, you know, and then, of course, I think there's also maybe a time for birth uh, when they have to, they have to, after 40 days, they have to go to purify themselves. The men would do the same thing, uh, probably, let's say, if they were exposed, let's say, burying a dead body. Or uh, whatever, may they might they might believe, let's say, exposed to, maybe they were around, a, uh, got into a Gentile's home. There's uh, the Pharisees came up with a lot of different excuses, but there were certain uh, things that came down from the law of Moses, and that would be it. Maybe you know that that would be the the, the ritual of mikvah, of washing. But for John, it was different. It's not ritual washing the way the way Judaism would practice, John was a one-time, sort of like a, door, uh, a preparation for the Messiah, for the, the Christ's, uh, uh, I guess, sacramental reign, you can say it. So that was, that was it. All right, so um, going, going on from here. Um, now, the appearance of John the Baptist is special and serves a purpose. Mark expects... Uh, the reader to be acquainted with the prophet Elijah, um, who wore a hairy garment, um, a, ca a camel skin with, uh, and a leather belt. He, um, let's say he he was around the time of King Has uh, uh, Ahab, I think, and Haz uh, Haziah, and said to them, "What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things?" They answered him, "He wore a garment of hair cloth." with a belt of leather about his loins. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishabite. This is in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. The detailed description of John's clothing underscores the fact that he is a prophet like Elijah. The reader can now understand even better that the uh, initiator of the words and actions of John the Baptist is, is God. John the Baptist fulfills the prophetic word of God in these texts. According to the prophet Malachi, God will send the prophet Elijah to prepare the day of the Lord. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, 
before the great and awesome day of the Lord, of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Least I come and strike uh, strike the land with a curse. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Now I highlighted the name Elijah uh, from the Hebrew, Elihu, meaning my God is Yahweh. It's a Greek form of Elias, which is according to the books of Kings in the Hebrew Bible, a prophet and a miracle worker who lived in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Ahab, 9th century BC in, a, in, in 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah defended the worship of the Hebrew God over the, the Canaanite deity of Baal. God, um, you know, so he, he defended that. And he was a miracle worker, obviously, but God also performed many miracles through Elijah, uh, including resurrection, bringing fire down from the sky and entering uh, um, entering heaven alive by fire. He also He's also portrayed as a leading school of prophets known as the Sons of the Prophets. Following the ascension of Elijah, his disciple and the most devoted assistant took over his role as leader of the school. The book of Malachi prophesies Elijah's return before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, making him a harbinger of the Messiah and of the, uh, of the, uh, of the end times in various faiths that revere the Hebrew Bible. Okay, that was, that now we know. His name means, uh, obviously, the, the God, my, Yahweh is my God, my Lord. So that's, we got to see the name. Hold on again. My God is Yahweh. And we got to learn, we get to learn a little bit more. It's good to hear, the, understand the names, what they're meaning, because there's a lot of meaning to the names. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. This is what Gabriel said also to uh, Zechariah. Uh, turns uh, awesome day. He will turn the, the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Least I come and strike the land with a curse. This is in Malachi chapter four, verse five and six. Through the reference to Elijah, the reader understands that the coming of the day of the Lord coincides with with the one with who is to come. It becomes clear that the new era is drawing. This makes the call of repentance all the more urgent. Words and actions of John the Baptist, like the return of Elijah, are aimed at conversion of heart as a preparation for his coming. Therefore, the reader now gets personally involved. Okay, the heralding of John the Baptist is reported to direct speech containing elements that give further information about the special person who has been called by God to carry out a mission. The person is mightier, having strength, um, that supersedes the human strengths of the Baptist. Moreover, John the Baptist will not remove his sandals. Traditionally, removing the other sandals is indicates the greater the greater importance of the coming one, and explains why John humbles himself before this person. Here too, Saint Mark counts on the reader to be familiar with the Old Testament texts and customs, in order to make his own position clear to all the people. The Baptist refers to a special law a well-known custom in Israel, the Leverite law, which involves 
the removal of sandals as the official confirmation. In ancient Israel, when a man died without offspring, his next of kin was bound to marry the widow and raise the family for the deceased so that his name would not be blotted out in Israel and could be perpetuated on his piece, uh, uh, piece of promised land. This uh, prov provision m might ensure that the promised land would never fall into foreign hands. If the nearest of kin refused to marry the widow, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the, of the elders and pull his sandals off his foot and, and spit on his, in his face, and she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 9. Later, the Sadducees, who do not believe in the resurrection and the life of, after death, try to snare Jesus in words by applying this law in unbelieving way. Mark chapter 12, verse 18, 27. A beautiful application of the Liverite law is found in the book of Ruth. Boaz fulfills the Liverite law in marrying Ruth, the widow of Malachan and son of Imelech of Bethlehem. Contracting this marriage poses problems, however, since the Boaz is not the next of kin. The nearest relative is kin on getting the property that rightfully belongs to Malachan, but he is not kin on marrying Ruth. Boaz knows how to deal with the situation. In the course of the story, the ancient Israel custom is explained. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a, tra a transaction. The one drew off his sandals and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Ruth chapter 4 verse 7. Boaz foresaw that the other contender did not want to marry Ruth in order to erase descendants for the deceased. Macalen, I'm sorry, Macalen. So the next of kin concedes his right by untying the thong of his sandals and handing the sandals to Boaz. John the Baptist refers to this ancient Israelite custom by saying that he is not worthy to untie the sandals of the one to come. John announces this special person as the rightful bridegroom of the bride who is Israel. So that's an interesting thing. So that's what John meant by that. He's saying that Jesus is the bridegroom and Israel is supposed to be the bride. Israel is the bride, but then something else comes along. Remember, Jesus got pierced in the side by Longinus, the Roman officer, and out came the bride, the new Eve, which is the church. The church is the new Israel. Now, it doesn't replace the old Israel. The old Israel is still the bride. But in a sense, there's always a saying where you got the wild olive tree and you got the cultivated olive tree. The cultivated olive tree is Israel. And the new olive tree is the Gentile nation, which will be grafted to the old olive tree so that there'll be one, no two brides, because you know he's not going to have a harem, right? That's interesting. All right, let's move on. So now we understand what John the Baptist meant by that reference. And the Pharisees probably understood what he meant, obviously, because the references of untying the sandals of one's feet, 
he's basically as I would say from a high priest background because he is the son he is a, of, of the son of Aaron uh, Zechariah his father is a, is a descendant of the house of Aaron in a sense he's relinquishing his right as a priest in a sense to be the bridegroom to Israel to the ultimate high priest the one who will hold this office forever Jesus Christ the last element in John's proclamation is the announcement of the baptism with the Holy Spirit by the one to come this statement is personally addressed to the to the people st. Mark speaks of the baptism with water in the past tense and about the baptism with the Holy Spirit in the future tense this builds an expectation in the reader for the one to come the baptism of John of John the Baptist has already been reported so now attention is focused on the baptism of the Holy Spirit water doesn't transform a person but the Holy Spirit does water affects a person superficially and calls for conversion but the Holy Spirit penetrates the heart of a person and enables the change of heart the early readers of st. Mark would not be completely unfamiliar with such a concept as baptism in the Holy Spirit because the prophet Ezekiel foretold this promise in the Old Testament I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be cleansed you should be clean from all your un uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you a new heart I will give you a new spirit I will put within you and I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 25 to 27 a reference to the Holy Spirit in Mark's gospel is rare it occurs only here in Mark chapter 3 verse 29 and again in Mark chapter 13 11 the Holy Spirit is the presence of God working through the words and actions of the one to come it thus becomes clear that not just the divine names are taken on by uh, on by the one to come but he also takes on the divine functions such as giving of the Holy Spirit now this part here Jesus of Nazareth is identified and confirmed as the only Son of God the prophecies of the of the old are fulfilled in Jesus a rather solemn Old Testament phrase in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee mark chapter 1 verse 9 introduces Jesus into the gospel a real introduction is not necessary since the opening verse of the gospel already identified Jesus as the the Christ the Son of God here only a geographical details added Jesus can't comes from the little-known town of Nazareth which is further specified as being located in Galilee at first the Baptist seems to remain uh, to rem to remain the active person when a passive verb st. Mark describes Jesus as the one who receives the baptism and ministered by the Baptist John a man of God acting on behalf of God now fades away from the narrative here Jesus and Jesus and God the Father initiate the action 
The baptism submerges Jesus into the water, but when Jesus comes up from the water, Mark narrates a series of events in which a divine sign comes down upon Jesus. It is Jesus who sees he has a vision and sees the heavens torn open and the Spirit descending upon him. In the worldview in which God dwells above the, the firmament and human history happens below, the tearing upon the tearing open of the heavens indicates that a top-down communication is going to take place. At this point, the Baptist disappears and the event is described through the eyes of Jesus. The Spirit descending upon Jesus fulfills the promise of the gift of the Spirit at the new creation as announced by the prophets, especially Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 3. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1 5. Isaiah 61, verse 1 and Isaiah 63 verse 10 and 14. Already the title verse St. Mark made a reference to creation in Genesis. The Spirit of God hovers over the waters in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. And now the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. Although symbolic use of the dove was widespread in classical literature, the subsequent Christian era, the connection between the Holy, between the Spirit and the dove as in Mark's description of the of baptism of Jesus, is new. The invisible creative spirit of God now comes down in the form of a dove, which Jesus can see with the visual experience of the dove comes in an auditory manifestation. Jesus hears the voice of God addressing him in direct speech from heaven, compared with, you are, you are my son, Psalm 2, verse 7. The expression of the gospel is more empathetic an added article, an adjective makes it clear that Jesus is the only Son of God. So, wow, we get a lot here, right? I mean, there's a lot going on here, and we're learning a lot here about about what uh, all these meanings. I mean, the symbolic meaning. Now we we're sort of like going into the mindset, the symbolic, or what they understand, because. They understand the, the the cultural, the religious symbolism, the language is helping us understand uh, from a Jewish perspective what all this means. Now, the divine proclamation of Jesus' dignity as the Son of God is not just another piece of information. Even at this early stage of the gospel, it becomes clear that there are two levels at work. On the horizontal level, the plan of uh, the pl the plane of the people uh, the plan of the people of God Jesus is the Messiah the Christ this only possible because of his relationship with God as his as uh, as beloved son which is the vertical dimension what remains unclear is why Jesus is well loved by God and how he acts out of his Messiah messiahship the prologue ends rather abruptly, and this indicates that there will be a surprise for the reader. In the end, the horizontal and vertical dimensions will inevitably result in a cross. All right. All right, so let's start over here. Mark's Gospel, Chapter 1. The beginning of the good news. The beginning of the, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. 
the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Hence, John the Baptist appeared in the desert, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People from from the entire Judean countryside and all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem went out to him, and as they confessed their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John was clothed in a garment of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food consisted of locusts and wild honey. And this was the message he proclaimed. One who is far more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy even to stoop down and loosen the, the straps of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And as he was coming up out of the water, he beheld the heavens break open and the spirit descending upon him like a dove and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son i in you i am well pleased the spirit immediately drove him out into the desert and he remained there for 40 days during which time he was tempted by satan he lived there among the wild beasts while the angels ministered to him. All right. This is, this is where we're going to leave off and we'll pick up later on. But we saw all the symbolism here, all of it. When he said, I am not worthy to uh, untie his sandals. And right now we understand what that means. All right. We understand that this is this is basically John is passing the office of the high priesthood to Jesus. In a sense, Jesus is fulfilling. You remember the story of Ruth. In the story of Ruth, Ruth was a Gentile. She was a Moabite. She married into a Jewish family, while her fa the the Jewish family left Judea because of 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 their sins, and they went over to the land of Moab for work for to survive. While there, Naomi, her mother-in-law, lost, uh, I believe, two of her sons. Ruth was married to one of them, right? And then she found herself a widow, but she went back home to, to in a sense, Israel with Naomi, her mother. Now there, she's already incorporated into the Jewish family. But what happened was the next of kin... Uh, which is a man named Macklin, he was supposed to marry Naomi. But his, but it appeared, I don't know, some kind of confusion. I can't remember everything in the story, but Boaz wanted him to relinquish his right. So he had to untie and loosen his sandals so that Boaz can step in and father children in, uh, of, in place of his cousin or his next of kin. In a sense, Israel... Uh, John is John is relinquishing his rights, John the Baptist, as high priest and passing down the office of the high priesthood in a human way to Jesus. And the Pharisees understood what that meant. John was also acknowledging his office of high priesthood being a descendant of Aaron. 
And so Caiaphas and Annas, who were Levites, but not descendants of Aaron, held that particular office and they held it very jealously. They don't, you know, there was a lot of talk about them that they weren't, they didn't have right to that high priesthood. But it's very interesting. So I'm going to end it here. Um, let's read the uh, closing prayer. Let me not, O Lord, be puffed up with worldly wisdom, which passes away. But grant me that love which never abates, so I may not choose to know, to know anything among men but Jesus and him crucified. I beseech you, loving Jesus, that as you have graciously given me the grace to drink in with delight the words of your knowledge, so mercifully grant me to attain one day to you the fountain of all wisdom and to appear forever before thy face. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, we'll continue this another time. God bless.